Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today is episode 280 for July 11th, 2022. And we've got a news show for you this week. Plenty of topics to cover. Most of them not good. Before we get to that, just want to let you know that my website just got a nice new facelift. And thanks to my patrons. Uh, this stuff costs money. Um, so it's simpler. It's more modern, I think. Uh, it should work better on mobile devices. It really does look nice. I'm, I'm taking feedback if anybody has any, but uh, I, I like the new look and I like the new layout. I've revamped some stuff, cleaned up some of the older pages, and hopefully just make things look better. Give it a look. Firewallsdon'tStopDragons.com. Now, we had a dark mode going. Uh, I say we, the, the web developer that I hired. It looked really good, but there's some weird quirks with different browsers, uh, which is why I pay someone to deal with this stuff. I could do it. I just don't want to. Uh, so anyway, we're still working that out. So soon, uh, look for a dark mode option. It'll be a little floating moon icon at the bottom right. Uh, when you come, uh, when you see that, try clicking on that. You should get a nice dark mode. Actually, it should be automatic if your uh, operating system is in dark mode already. Um, so, uh, anyway, hopefully that'll come soon, but anyway, the, the overall look and feel is much better. Now. I think I'm moving all the branding towards the new logo and away from the old book cover artwork with the blue, uh, blue sky and dragon stuff. So uh, I, the podcast artwork might be changing here soon as well. So when you're looking at your app and it looks different, don't freak out. That's, that's expected that will be coming. Now, another thing on the new website that you might want to check out is, as I've got a new support page beyond being a patron. Now there's basically a tip jar option. If you want to go that route, it's more private for those of you who are uber privacy conscious. You can just directly send me some Monero. So if that may interest you, check that out. Just look for the big support button on the web page and it'll tell you all about it, including how to do it. If, you're, if you've never done it, maybe this might be a fun opportunity to learn how that stuff works. By the way, I finally got my actual hacker box subscription box in the mail with my uh, uh, amulet of entropy badge in there and I built it in about two and a half hours it's got a lot of really tiny parts but it, it was so satisfying to get that done and see it the, the the black looks so much better than the kind of green prototype boards that I've been working on so I finally have my own real one <laughs> the real one with the final look and feel it looks great again if you're interested at all especially if you're going to defcon and you want to get a really cool indie badge uh, go to amuletofentropy.com all the information is there I also got a really nice podcast review. Thank you so much. Uh, and I will read that after the news. Okay, so today in the news, we've got several stories, most of them not with happy endings. Google has patched Chrome uh, with a zero-day exploit that has been exploited in the wild, so you need to update Chrome right away if you haven't already. It should be set to update itself, but nevertheless, uh, you might want to kick it in the pants and make sure that it, that it does its updates right away. California gun owners had their information exposed, which really ticked off a lot of people. Marriott confirms yet another data breach, but even that pales in comparison to what appears to be the leak of data on a billion people in China. Oh my gosh, that's, that's just horrible. We'll talk about those. The cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase apparently has been providing geo-tracking data to our customs officials here in the United States. That's disturbing. There's a new router-based malware attack going on that's very sophisticated. Hundreds of Windows networks have been infected with a new Raspberry Robin worm. But there are some good stories. There has been a free decryptor released for AstroLocker. And uh, Yashma ransomware victims might want to hear about that. Firefox has got another privacy feature that they just rolled out. And a bug fix, by the way. So either way, you want to get Firefox updated as well. Apple has announced a really interesting lockdown mode. And then I'm going to read you just a little bit of an article about how ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement uh, Agency here in the United States, 
has really turned into a massive surveillance program uh, that's very disturbing. And then we'll get to the tip of the week. So lots to cover. Let's get to it. All right, first up, an article here from Naked Security, the Sophos blog uh, about the Google uh, Zero Day. Google's latest update to Chrome browser fixes a varying number of bugs depending on whether you're on Android, Windows, or Mac, and depending on whether you're running the stable channel or the extended stable channel. Don't worry if you find the plethora of Google blog posts confusing, we did too, so we've tried to come up with an all-in-one summary below. The stable channel is the very latest version, including all new browser features, currently numbered Chrome 103. The extended stable channel identifies itself as Chrome 102 and doesn't have the latest features, but does have the latest security fixes. Three CVE-numbered bugs are listed across the three bulletins listed above. And I'm actually going to read these because later in this article, they actually explain what some of these things are, which I thought was interesting. So if these bug descriptions sound like gobbledygook, just hold on for a minute because we're going to talk about what these mean. All right. First one, CVE 2022-2294. And by the way, the numbering system here is the year. So it's CVE Common Vulnerability. uh, I forget what the E stands for. 2022, which is this year. And then another four-digit number, which is probably a a sequential number for when, how many they found starting with the beginning of the year. So this is 2,294. So anyway, number 2294, buffer overflow in WebRTC, a zero-day hole already known to the cybercrime fraternity and actively exploited in the wild. This bug appears in all versions listed above, Android, Windows, and Mac, in both stable and extended stable flavors. WebRTC is short for Web Real-Time Communication, which is used by many audio and video sharing services you use, such as those for remote meetings, webinars, and online phone calls. All right, the second one is numbered 2295. Type confusion in V8. The term V8 refers to Google's JavaScript engine used by any website that includes JavaScript code, which in 2022 is almost every website out there. This bug appears in Android, Windows, and Mac, but apparently in Chrome 103 flavor only. And then the third one, number 2296, use after free in Chrome OS shell. This is listed as applying to the stable channel on Windows and Mac, although the Chrome OS shell is, as the name suggests, a part of Chrome OS, which is neither Windows nor Mac based. Additionally, Google has patched uh, against a bunch of non-CVE numbered bugs that are collectively labeled as the bug ID, and then it gets a bug ID, who cares? These patches provide a slew of proactive fixes based on, quote, internal audits, fuzzing, and other initiatives, unquote, and I'll come back to what fuzzing is, which very probably means that they aren't previously known to anyone else and therefore never were and no longer can be turned into zero-day holes, which is good news. Linux users haven't had a mention in this month's Boltons yet, but it's not clear whether that's because none of these bugs apply to the Linux code base, because the patches aren't quite ready yet for Linux, or because the bugs aren't considered important enough to get Linux-specific fixes. To give you a very quick glossary of the important bug categories above. Buffer overflow. This means that data supplied by an attacker gets dumped into a block of memory that isn't big enough for the amount that was sent. If the extra data ends up spilling over into memory space already used by other parts of the software, it may, or in this case does, deliberately and treacherously affects the behavior of the browser. Type confusion. Imagine that you are supplying data such as price of product that the browser is supposed to treat as a simple number. Now imagine that you can later trick the browser into using the number you just supplied as if it were a memory address or a text string instead. 
the number that passed the check to make sure it was a legal price probably isn't a valid memory address or text string, and would therefore not have been accepted without the ruse of sneaking it in under the guise of a different data type. By feeding in data that's valid when checked but invalid when used, an attacker could deliberately subvert the behavior of the browser. And finally, use after free. This means that one part of the browser incorrectly carries on using a block of memory after it was handed back to the system for reallocation elsewhere. As a result, data that's already been checked for safety by the code that assumes it owns the memory concerned could end up sneakily modified just before it gets used, thus treacherously affecting the behavior of the browser. And I'll come back to some of these in a minute. So what to do? Chrome will probably update itself, but we always recommend checking anyway. On Windows and Mac, use this menu sequence. Go to More, then Help, then About Chrome, or About Google Chrome, and then Update Google Chrome. On Android, check that your Play Store apps are up to date. After updating, you're looking for versions, and these you won't remember these, but 102 and 103 for the stable and extended stable. Just get the latest ones. On Linux, we're not sure what version number to look out for, but you might as well do the help about update security dance anyway to ensure you've got the latest version available right now. Okay, so I thought this was good because it actually talks about what some of these programming bugs are that allow bad guys to do bad things. And in almost all these cases, what ends up happening is it's some way to corrupt data that's in memory so that when the computer goes to do something with that data, it ends up doing something else. And so if you have the opportunity with a buffer overflow or a type confusion or a use after free to populate some portion of memory, and again, like when you wrote, when you're running a program, uh, you load all the instructions into memory and it's a long list. It's like a recipe for, you know, making a pie or some sort of complicated bread or something. I mean, it's do this, then do this, wait this long, then do this, you know, if this, then do that. But if not this, do something else that is all computer code is. And so there's space for data, you know, if I'm doing computations and I need to keep a running list of some of the numbers that, that I've generated or, or whatever, uh, there's that data. And then there's the program space where all these instructions live. And if you can, as a hacker, overwrite the memory and go beyond the bounds of something uh, that is supposed to be bounded and you find a way to get past that, you can actually populate in memory illicit instructions or pointers to a place where you've stored some illicit instructions. All these tricks basically boil down to finding some way to trick the computer into running your code instead of the code that it was meant to run. And at that point, if you could do that, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And another term they mentioned here was fuzzing, which is, which is a great term. I love the term fuzzing. And it's kind of what it sounds like. And that is when you are working with computer programs that deal in very specific protocols, like, you know, dealing with TCP IP or SIP or some of these other protocols that are meant to work in a certain way uh, that are complicated enough that there are some ambiguity maybe in there, or it's potentially you could throw, you know, bad data as something. Fuzzing basically is a way of saying, okay, here's what the parameters are. Here's all the things that are supposed to happen. And I'm just going to throw a whole bunch of junk at it and see if I can get it to break. And it's usually more sophisticated than that. I mean, it's like, okay, again, with this, like this type confusion thing, like, well, if it's expecting a number, what happens if I give it letters instead? Or if it's expecting a value that's this long here, and then followed by another value that's this long, what if I give it one value that's way too long and, and maybe clobbers the second one after going over the bounds of the first one? Fuzzing is a matter of kind of in a pseudo random way, which is the fuzzing part, taking a known 
protocol or a, no, a known set of instructions or a known data set and throwing all sorts of random stuff, throwing spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks and trying to get it to break. And if you get it to break, if you get it to actually glitch, then you know that you've actually got a way at that point to do these other techniques where, okay, I, I know where I can now give it bad data to cause it to go out in the weeds. And now I need to put something out in the weeds that is malevolent. So anyway, I thought that article was actually more interesting because it talked about some of these techniques and I thought it'd be fun to cover this. All right, next up, this is from Gizmodo. A data breach at the California Department of Justice has spilled a wealth of data about the state's gun owners onto the internet. The breach, which involved the 2022 Firearms Dashboard Portal, a website launched Monday, and this is probably two weeks ago at this point, revealed names, birthdays, addresses, ages, the purchase date, and type of firearm permit they possessed, and their criminal identification index numbers, which are used to track state and federal cr criminal records. Included in this trove were the identities of every concealed carry permit holder in the state, information that, by its very nature, is supposed to be secret. The data also apparently included information on whether carriers were judges or members of law enforcement. The DOJ pulled all the links to the site after it learned of the failure to protect the data. The 2022 Firearms Dashboard Portal, which the DOJ launched on Monday, was supposed to, quote, increase transparency and information sharing, unquote, according to the Associated Press release. It certainly did that. While the site was supposed to provide aggregated, presumably anonymous, data about gun transactions and ownership across the state, visitors to the site quickly realized that the personal information of individual gun owners had been exposed. It's unclear why the information was visible. Not long after the breach was discovered, the government took down the dashboard. A visit to the website on Wednesday, and I think this would have been last Wednesday, showed that it was still down. Predictably, the data breach has already stirred paranoia and conspiratorial thinking on the part of gun owners. Many have used the term DOX, that's D-O-X, to describe the data breach, seeming to imply that the information had been leaked on purpose on some sort of liberal revenge for gun owners' recent Supreme Court victory. Listen, anybody familiar with state government knows that bureaucrats are not known for their technological prowess or their attention to website security. Just look at the scandal involving the Missouri Governor Mike Parson, who recently left 100,000 public employees' social security numbers exposed on a website, then tried to blame it all on the journalist who discovered the data breach. In short, governments screw up digital security often, and this seems like a pretty big screw up. So there was actually more political stuff in this thing, because obviously a lot of gun owners are really ticked off, and this being a, a, a liberal state, blamed whoever Democrat or liberal in charge for doing this on purpose. We haven't gotten to the bottom of this yet, and it may very well have been on purpose. We don't know. But as this, as the author of this article says, more than likely Occam's razor applies here. And it's the simplest explanation is probably the correct one in that it was just shoddy workmanship. Somebody screwed up and made the data, data available publicly when it should have been private. Uh, we'll find out any data breach is bad. This was really a screw up on somebody's part, and it's some really sensitive information. So somebody needs to, you know, they need to get to the bottom of this. And if it's just incompetence, you know, then take action appropriately. But if, if, it was, if this was done on purpose, then, you know, that should be a crime. All right, next up, this is from uh, TechCrunch. Hotel group Marriott International has confirmed another data breach, with hackers claiming to have stolen 20 gigabytes of sensitive data, including guests' credit card information. The incident, first reported by databreaches.net, which, by the way, I'd never heard of, is said to have happened in June when an unnamed hacking group claimed that they had used social engineering 
to trick an employee at Marriott Hotel in Maryland into giving them access to their computer. Marriott said the hotel chain identified and was investigating the incident before the threat actor contacted the company in an extortion attempt, which Marriott said it did not pay. The group claiming responsibility for the attack say the stolen data includes guests' credit card information and confidential information about both guests and employees. Samples of the data provided to databreaches.net purport to show reservation logs for airline crew members from January 2022 and names and other details of guests as well as credit card information used to make bookings. However, Marriott told TechCrunch that its investigation determined that the data accessed, quote, primarily contained non-sensitive internal business files regarding the operation of the property, unquote. The company said that it is preparing to notify three to 400 individuals regarding the incident and has already notified relevant law enforcement agencies. This isn't the first time Marriott has suffered a significant data breach. Hackers breached the hotel chain in 2014 to access almost 340 million guest records worldwide, an incident that went undetected until September 2018 and led to a 14.4 million pound or $24 million fine from the UK's Information Commissioner's Office. In January 2020, Marriott was hacked again in a separate incident that affected about 5.2 million guests. TechCrunch asked Marriott what cybersecurity protections it has in place to prevent such incidents from happening, but the company declined to answer. So that's not good enough. <laughs> we need we need regulations with teeth on this stuff. This this should have come with automatic penalties and there should have been automatic reporting required. And so it sounds like it really didn't affect that many people. It remains to be seen, you know, how much of that information actually got out. Sometimes these things do escalate and they'll find out later that it was actually affecting more people. We'll, we'll see. But really the, 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 really the issue here is that Marriott was hacked again, but that one obviously pales in comparison to this next story. And this is from ZDNet and this is short, but powerful. Okay. Sensitive personal information about over a billion people has apparently been leaked from a government agency and put up for sale on the dark web in what would be one of the biggest data breaches in history. Information that has been leaked is said to include names, addresses, national ID numbers, and mobile phone numbers, along with police and medical records. In a tweet, Shangpeng Zhao, uh, hopefully I got that right. CEO of cryptocurrency exchange Binance said, quote, our threat intelligence detected 1 billion resident records for sale in the dark web, unquote, pointing towards a bug and a deployment in an unnamed government agency as the reason the data was able to be accessed. He warned that the information stolen could have an impact on hacker detection and prevention measures. I'm not sure what he means by that. Zhao doesn't name a particular country in his post, but according to Reuters, a user posting on a prominent underground hacking forum claimed to be selling a data base containing over 23 terabytes of personal information belonging to billions of Chinese citizens. Reuters said the hackers claimed the information had been leaked from the Shanghai National Police database and are offering up for sale for 10 Bitcoin, currently around $200,000. Reuters was unable to confirm this and the police department didn't respond to the news agency's request for comment. All right, so given where this is happening, we may not learn more than this about this story, but if true, it is horrendous. And so now I've had, what, three stories today already on data breaches, and these keep happening. And so, you know, again, we need some regulation with teeth that will maybe give these companies more reason to spend money on security, because right now they can kind of put out a press release, say, I'm sorry, offer one year of credit protection and call it a day. And just it's part of the cost of doing business. It's got to be more than that. We've, we've got to make this really hurt if they don't get it right. And if there's real, you know, malfeasance going on, that should cost them a lot of money. 
it should be more expensive to not have security than to try to do security right. I mean, there there will be errors. You are going to get it wrong, but you got to try. And of course, I mean, the original sin here is that we're just collecting way too damn much data. This stuff is going to get loose. Information wants to be free. And there's a lot of people out there who are happy to help that happen. So at this point, not only do we need regulations on the collecting and storing of data, we honestly need to purge a lot of the data we already have and just just start over. All right, moving on. Uh, this is a story from The Intercept, and this is another story about data abuse and the reason why we've got to stop collecting all this data and making it freely available throughout, in this case, government agencies. Okay, so uh, this is about ICE, or the Immigration and Customs uh, Enforcement Organization here in the United States. Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the United States, is selling Immigrations and Customs Enforcement a suite of features used to track and identify cryptocurrency users, according to contract documents shared with The Intercept. In August of 2021, Coinbase sold a single analytic software license to ICE for $29,000, followed by a software purchase potentially worth $1.36 million the next month. But details of exactly what capabilities would be offered to the agency's controversial Homeland Security Investigations Division were unclear. A new contract document obtained by Jack Poulsen director of the Watchdog Group Tech Inquiry and shared with The Intercept, shows ICE now has access to a variety of forensic features provided through Coinbase Tracer, the company's intelligence gathering tool, formerly known as Coinbase Analytics. Coinbase Tracer allows clients in both government and the private sector to trace transactions through the blockchain, a distributed ledger of transactions integral to cryptocurrency use. While blockchain ledgers are typically public, the enormous volume of data stored therein could make following the money from spender to recipient beyond difficult, if not impossible, without the aid of software tools. Coinbase markets Tracer for use in both corporate compliance and law enforcement investigations, touting its ability to, quote, investigate illicit activities, including money laundering and terrorist financing, and connect cryptocurrency addresses to real-world entities, unquote. According to the document released by a Freedom of Information Act request, ICE is now able to track transactions through nearly a dozen different digital currencies, including Bitcoin, Ether, and Tether. Analytic features include, quote, multi-hop link analysis for incoming and outgoing funds, unquote, granting ICE insight into transfers of these currencies, as well as, quote, transaction demixing and shield and shielded transaction analysis, unquote, aimed at thwarting methods some crypto users take to launder their funds or camouflage their transactions. The contract also provides provocatively, quote, historical geo-tracking data, unquote, though it's unclear what exactly this data consists of or from where it's sourced. An email released through the FOIA request, that's Freedom of Information Act, shows that Coinbase didn't require ICE to agree to an end-user license agreement, standard legalese that imposes limits on what a customer can do with software. When asked about the ICE contract and the data involved, Coinbase spokesperson Natasha LeBranch directed The Intercept to a disclaimer on its website stating, quote, Coinbase tracer sources its information from public sources and does not make use of Coin, uh, Coinbase user data, unquote. LeBranch did not answer questions about how ICE is using Coinbase tracer, how it sources location data, or if the company imposed any limits on ICE's use of the tool. Coinbase has in recent years made a concerted effort to pitch its intelligence features to government agencies, including the IRS, Secret Service, and Drug Enforcement Administration. Earlier this month, Coinbase Vice President of Global Intelligence, John 
Kothenak testified before a congressional panel panel that his company was eager to aid the cause of Homeland Security. And, and this is a quote from him. It says, quote, if you are a cyber criminal and you're using crypto, you're going to have a bad day. We are going to track you down and we're going to find that finance and we're going to hopefully help the government seize that crypto, unquote. Coinbase's government work has proved highly controversial to many crypto fans, owing perhaps both to the long-running libertarian streak in that community and the fact that these currencies are so frequently used to facilitate various forms of fraud. Homeland Security Investigations, the division of ICE that purchased the Coinbase tool, is tasked not only with immigration-related matters, aiding migrant raids and deportation operations, but broader transnational crimes as well, including various forms of financial offenses. And this is a quote from an ICE spokesperson uh, who wrote in a statement to The Intercept, quote, The contract provides a tool that supplements an HSI capability to investigative trackers on deadly opioids on the dark web and cyber criminals who seek to attack critical infrastructure. This tool does not reveal any sensitive, personally identifiable information, is only referenced in criminal investigations, and is not utilized in civil immigration enforcement, unquote. A spokesman did not respond to questions about how precisely it, was, it has used Tracer or might in the future, including the use of location data, noting that, quote, the agency does not provide specifics on investigative techniques, tools, and or ongoing investigations or operations, unquote. So <laughs> I don't know what good this information would, would be to ICE if it was truly lacking in any personal identifiable information. Why else would ICE want this data? Uh, obviously, the location data in particular would be of use to somebody trying to locate and perhaps deport an individual. And that's not my last story today on, uh, on ICE surveillance. I'll get to that uh, later. But now let's move on to this article from Ars Technica. And this is about a sophisticated new uh, malware attack against routers. An unusually advanced hacking group has spent almost two years infecting a wide range of routers in North America and Europe with malware that takes full control of connected devices running Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, researchers reported on Tuesday. So far, researchers from Lumen Technologies' Black Lotus Labs say they've identified at least 80 targets infected by the stealthy malware infecting routers made by Cisco, Netgear, Asus, and Draytech. Dubbed Joarat, or Joarat, that's Z-U-R-A-T, and the R-A-T stands for Remote Access Trojan, which is a type of malware. So dubbed Joarat, uh, the Remote Access Trojan is part of a broader hacking campaign that has existed since at least the fourth quarter of 2020 and continues to operate. The discovery of custom-built malware written for the MIPS architecture, and that's a type of uh, processor, I believe, and compiled for small office and home office routers is significant, particularly given its range of capabilities. Its ability to enumerate all devices connected to an infected router and collect the DNS lookups and network traffic they send and receive and remain undetected is the hallmark of a highly sophisticated threat actor. This is a quote from Black Lotus. They say, quote, while compromising Soho routers as an access vector to gain access to an adjacent LAN is not a novel technique, it has seldom been reported. Similarly, reports of person-in-the-middle style attacks, such as DNS and HTTP hijacking, are even rarer and a mark of a complex and targeted operation. The use of these two techniques congruently demonstrated a high level of sophistication by a threat actor, indicating that this campaign was possibly performed by a state-sponsored organization, unquote. 
The campaign comprises at least four pieces of malware, three of them written from scratch by the threat actor. The first piece is the MIPS-based Jorat, or I'm going to keep pronouncing this different every time probably, which closely resembles the Mirai Internet of Things malware that achieved record-breaking distributed denial-of-service attacks that crippled some internet services for days. Jorat uh, also gets installed by exploiting unpatched vulnerabilities and Soho devices. Once installed, Zorat enumerates the devices connected to the infected router. In other words, it, from its position as the router where all the network traffic goes through, it can identify how many devices are on your network and probably what those devices are. The threat actor can then use DNS hijacking and HTTP hijacking to cause the connected device to install other malware. In other words, as any of your devices in your network are trying to connect to something out on the internet and say, hey, connect me to this website, uh, it can intercept that and send you to a, a malicious website instead, and then that malicious website can install malware. Two of those malware pieces, dubbed CBeacon and GoBeacon, are custom-made with the first written in Windows and C++ and the latter written in Go for cross-compiling on Linux and macOS devices. For flexibility, Jorat can also infect connected devices with the widely used Cobalt Strike hacking tool. Zorat can pivot infections to connected devices using one of two methods. First, DNS hijacking, which replaces the valid IP addresses corresponding to a domain such as Google or Facebook with a malicious one operated by the attacker. Or two, HTTP hijacking, in which the malware inserts itself into the connection to generate a 302 error that redirects the user to a different IP address. The discovery of this ongoing campaign is the most important one affecting Soho routers since VPN filter, the router malware created and deployed by the Russian government that was discovered in 2018. Routers are often overlooked, particularly in the work-from-home era. While organizations have strict requirements on what devices are allowed to connect, few mandate patching or other safeguards for the device's routers. Like most router malware, Zorat can't survive a reboot. Simply restarting an infected device will remove the initial Zorat exploit, consisting of files stored in a temporary directory. To fully recover, however, infected devices should be factory reset. Unfortunately, in the event connected devices have been infected with the other malware, they can't be disinfected so easily. All right, so my guess is this is probably used in targeted attacks against rich targets, and that's probably not your everyday person like most of you listening to this podcast. However, it's important to understand, as this article tries to drive home, that your router is an extremely important piece of equipment in your overall security setup at home. And so you absolutely need to make sure that your home router is as secure as it can be. Uh, first of all, I would own it myself. I would not use one given to me by, by my ISP because I want to have full control over that router. I would buy my own. Make sure it's recent. You're going to want a router. If you haven't upgraded your router in you know, five years plus, you're due for a new router. Second, when you get that router, be absolutely sure that you disable any external access. Turn off any UPnP that's set to be set up on the outside of your router, on the internet side. That, I don't know why that's even possible, but some routers have it and some routers have that turned on by default. Make sure you keep your router up to date. If you're going to get a new router, try to find one that has an automatic uh, self-updating software feature. That should be mandatory at this point, but it's not. Uh, if you can't find one like that that you like, uh, then make sure that you set a reminder for yourself, maybe once a month, to look for updates to your router and apply them as soon as they are available. And just restart your router from time to time. A lot of these hacks... Uh, require the device to remain running. They're kind of in memory only. So that if you just power the router off and power back on, uh, a lot of these things go away. Now, that doesn't fix the bug that got that thing infected in the first place. So you're still going to want to make sure that you keep that software up to date. All right, next up, another malware story. This is from PC Magazine. 
Microsoft released a private threat intelligence advisory informing organizations that a worm called Raspberry Robin, that's kind of funny if you think about it, is infecting hundreds of Windows networks. As Bleeping Computer reports, uh, Raspberry Robin is being spread via infected USB devices. It requires a user to insert the USB device and click a malicious .lnk file. After that, the worm uses the Windows command prompt to launch an MSI exec process and run a malicious file also present on the device. A connection is then established with the command and control server using a short URL, and if successful, a number of malicious DLLs are downloaded and installed. A legitimate Windows utility, uh, odbcconf.exe, is then used to execute the DLLs while the worm repeatedly attempts to connect to Tor network nodes. At least some of the command and control servers being used are thought to be infected QNAP NAS devices. I know that's a lot of alphabet soup there. Sorry, but um, don't worry too much about those details. What's worrying is whoever deployed Raspberry Robin so successfully has yet to take advantage of the infected Windows networks. The malware introduced by the worm is capable of bypassing Windows User Account Control, or UAC, and has already proven it can use the utilities available to the OS. So while nobody currently knows the goal of Raspberry Robin, the control it imposes over a network means new malware could be downloaded and deployed very quickly. Microsoft has flagged Raspberry Robin as a high-risk campaign with good reason, and for now, there doesn't seem to be any mitigation process beyond not plugging suspicious USB devices into a Windows network. Intelligence analyst Red Canary produced a detailed report about the worm, and there's a link right there in that text, back in May, which offers a deeper look into how it works. So I'm not going to go too much more into that. If you if you are a Windows administrator of any sort, you might want to look into this if you haven't heard about this already. But the upshot for most of you is beware <laughs> random USB devices. Uh, and it's not just flash drives, by the way. USB devices, by their nature, have a little super tiny computer in them with a little bit of memory that runs software, particularly usually software drivers. Uh, and because of this, a lot of computers kind of trust them automatically because if I plug in a new keyboard or a new mouse or a new printer or something, my printer's a little different because that has heavier duty driver software. But if it's a simple USB device, oftentimes that the driver for that device for Windows or Mac is contained in the device. And so that when it plugs in, it kind of acts like a little USB drive where the driver, you know, if the OS says, I don't know what you are, do you know what you are? Oh, you're one of those. Here, tell me about that and I'll, and I'll set you up so you can run. How convenient. <laughs> Well, so this is the basis for uh, an old exploit called bad USB. Uh, and you just have to be very careful with unknown USB devices. Like you don't know where that thing's been. So buy your stuff new. Don't definitely don't be like go shopping for USB devices at like garage sales or flea markets or stuff like that. At least not if you care about your computers, you got to be careful out there. You can't just trust these things. You got to know that they actually could could infect your computer if you're not careful. All right, now let's get to some let's get to some better news, some good news. This is from Bleeping Computer. New Zealand-based cybersecurity firm MZSoft has released a free decryption tool to help AstraLocker and Yashma ransomware victims recover their files without paying a ransom. The free tool is available for download from MZSoft's from MZSoft's servers, uh, and there's a link in this article. And it allows you to recover encrypted files using easy-to-follow instructions available in uh, this usage guide. Again, there's a link to a PDF file. 
And this is a quote from MCSoft, quote, be sure to quarantine the malware from your system first, or it may repeatedly lock your system or encrypt files. By default, the decryptor will pre-populate the locations to decrypt with the currently connected drives and network drives. Additional locations can be added using the add button, unquote. The ransomware decryptor will allow you to keep the files encrypted in the attack as a failsafe if the decrypted files are not identical to the original documents. MZSoft also advised AstroLocker, AstroLocker and Yashima victims whose, whose systems were compromised via Windows Remote Desktop to change the passwords for all user accounts that have permissions to log in remotely and look for other local accounts the rats, ransomware operators might have added. The decryptor, and this is an interesting twist to the story, the decryptor was released after the threat actor behind AstroLocker ransomware told Bleeping Computer this week that they're shutting down the operation with a plan to switch to crypto mining. And this is a quote from the AstroLocker's developer, apparently, to Bleeping Computer, and they told them, quote, It was fun, and fun things always end sometime. I'm closing the operation. Decryptors are in zip files clean. I will come back. I'm done with ransomware for now. I'm going in crypto jacking, LOL, unquote. The ransomware developer shared a zip archive with AstroLocker and Yashma decryptors. They were submitted to virus total malware analysis platform. Even though they did not reveal the reason behind the AstroLocker shutdown, the most likely cause is the sudden publicity brought by recent reports that have landed the operation in law enforcement crosshairs. While it doesn't happen very often, other ransomware groups have also released decryption keys and decryptors to bleeping computer and security researchers in the past, either as a gesture of goodwill when shutting down or when they released new versions. So first of all, obviously, if you were a victim of either of these two um, ransomware campaigns, then you're in luck. Apparently, you can get your files back without having to pay any money. Now, you might not know <laughs> because they probably don't broadcast in the warning message, hey, you just got infected by AstroLocker. Um, so there are ways to find that out too. And uh, there are two other websites beyond Bleeping Computer that I want to draw your attention to if you're a ransomware victim. Uh, one is called nomorransom.org. And the other is id-ransomware.malwarehunterteam.com. And don't worry, these links are in the show notes. But both of these organizations uh, work to either reverse engineer some of these ransomware products in order to get people's files back uh, or work with some of these organizations in some cases like this to actually be handed decrypting tools and then distribute them. MZSoft does some of this as well. So if you are ever infected by ransomware or know somebody who is, before you pay, do some research and start with those websites in particular to so try to identify what you might be infected with and whether or not there exists a way to get your files back without paying. All right, next up, this is from 9to5Mac that was covered in many places, uh, just real short here. In the release of Mozilla Firefox 102 comes an important new privacy feature for users. This new tool strips parameters from URLs, that's uh, web site addresses, that track your internet usage. According to an article from Bleeping Computer, uh, companies like Facebook, Marketo, and HubSpot use custom URL query parameters to track links on clicks. Companies do this in order to provide users with a more personalized ad experience online. Called Query Parameter Stripping, these sites can no longer track what links you click when browsing on Firefox, once you've enabled this feature. Bleeping Computer states that the new privacy enhancement is part of Firefox's enhanced tracking protection. You can enable Query Parameter Stripping by going into Settings, clicking Privacy and Security, and then changing Enhanced Tracking Protection to Strict. Also, the article states that tracking parameters will not be taken away in private browsing even after clicking Strict, which I think is weird. I'm sure there must be a reason for that. But here's how you fix that. 
To also enable the feature in private mode, enter about colon config in the address bar, search for strip, uh, S-T-R-I-P, and set the privacy.query underscore stripping dot enabled dot PB mode option to true as shown below. And again, if you click on the, the link in the article, you can at least see a picture of this. Additionally, if you run across any issues with this feature, you can put your settings back to standard. So th- this is another great little feature. It's, you know, I don't know how often this is used anymore, but you know, it's great to have these things anyway. I'm not sure why they disable it in private mode, but if you want to be able to have this feature in private mode, uh, this article tells you how to do that. And just generally speaking, when you're dealing with Firefox, there are a ton of internal options that you can access with this about colon config. Uh, And just, it'll warn you as soon as you do that, I'll say, Hey, you know what you're doing here? You know, beware all ye who enter, right? Uh, So, you know, don't worry about that too much. Just know that changing some of these things will change the behavior. That's the whole point. And you'll might need to change them back. And it does have a nice indication as to whether or not you have overridden the default or not. And it's really easy to go back to whatever that default is. So anyway, uh, that is how you use that new Firefox feature. All right, next up, this is from Ars Technica. A lot of other people covered this as well. This feature hasn't really been released yet to the to the public. It should be coming in the, in, in the fall when Apple releases its updates to iOS and macOS. And I normally don't cover these things until they actually happen because they can change. But I thought this was really cool uh, and I want to talk about it a little bit. So uh, let me read a little bit from this article from Ars Technica. Mercenary spyware is one of the hardest threats to combat. It targets an infinitesimally small percentage of the world, making it statistically unlikely for most of us to ever see it. And yet, because the sophisticated malware only selects the most influential individuals, think diplomats, political dissidents, and lawyers, uh, it has a devastating effect that's far out of proportion to the small number of people infected. This puts device and software makers in a bind. How do you build something to protect what's likely well below 1% of your user base against malware built by companies like NSO Group, maker of clickless exploits that instantly uh, convert fully updated iOS and Android devices into sophisticated biking devices? And by the way, it's probably even lower than 1%. It's, It's probably much lower than that. Now, here's, here's what it actually does, at least so far. Again, this hasn't been released yet, so this could change. But just to give you a flavor of what they're trying to do in this lockdown mode. So there's five different areas that, it, that currently it targets. First of all, messages. Most message attachment types other than images are blocked. Some features like link previews are disabled. Second, web browsing. Certain complex web technologies like just-in-time or JIT JavaScript compilation are disabled unless the user excludes a trusted site from lockdown mode. Third, Apple services. Incoming invitations and service requests, including FaceTime calls, are blocked if the user has not previously sent the initiator a call or request. That's really interesting. Four, wired connections with a computer or accessory are blocked when the iPhone is locked. That's great. Uh, Fifth, configuration profiles cannot be installed and the device cannot enroll into mobile device management or MDM while lockdown mode is turned on. I'll come back to this in just a minute. It's useful that Apple is upfront about the extra friction lockdown adds to the user experience because it underscores what every security professional or hobbyist knows. Security always results in a trade-off with usability. Well, not always, but often. It's also encouraging that Apple plans to allow users to allow list, or that's a dash word, allow dash list, used as a verb, allow list the sites that are allowed to serve JIT JavaScript while in lockdown mode. Fingers crossed, Apple might enable similar allow listing of trusted contacts. Lockdown mode is a big deal for lots of reasons, not the least of which is that it comes from Apple, a company that's hypersensitive about customer perception. 
officially acknowledging that its customers are vulnerable to the scourge of mercenary spyware is a big step. But the move is big because of its simplicity and concreteness. No security snake oil here. If you want better security, learn to do without the services that pose the biggest threat. So this is cool. And I think later in the article, it talks about how because Apple's going to do this, Google's probably going to have to follow suit. So Android users will probably get something like this too at some point, which is great. And I think it's good to have this option. And there are, for some people, a true, true need for this level of security. And you don't want to forego having a smartphone. So this is really cool that they're doing this. And I can't wait to see what the final product looks like when it comes out. We'll definitely talk about it. If I can manage to find somebody in in privacy and security at Apple, uh, I'd love to bring them on the program and actually interview them about these features. But I want to circle back to the fourth item on that list about things that are restricted about wired connections. So a lot of times, these devices can be hacked if you can hook up a cable to them, uh, a lightning cable, for example, on an iPhone or a USB-C cable on some of these devices uh, that gives you access oftentimes to special debug modes that allow you to bypass some security features. So the fact that this new security mode will basically disallow any wired connections of any sort while in this lockdown mode is wonderful. And what I really hope actually is that this lockdown mode is something you can temporarily enable and disable. Like for example, I would love to do this lockdown mode when crossing borders, for example, because at the borders, either coming in and out of a country, there are there are different rules. They're usually allowed much greater latitude into how prying they can be with your technology. Uh, they may say, you have to unlock it. And what are you going to do? <laughs> not leave the country uh, or not enter the country uh, if, they, if you say no? you know, will you be detained or, you know, whatever. But sometimes they say, well, just give me your device. Uh, you don't have to unlock it. Don't worry. We got that. <laughs> and then they take it in some back room and do God knows what to it, which honestly probably means hooking up a cable to it and running some software on it. Uh, they won't do this to everybody, but if, you know, you give them the wrong vibe or something, they might pick you out of the crowd and interrogate your devices. And, you know, they've got the capability in some senses to download all the data on your device uh, and keep it for who knows how long and share it with who knows who. So I would love to be able to temporarily put my iPhone in lockdown mode, for example, and, you know, for certain times when I could be most at uh, most at risk. So we'll see where this goes. I'll keep you posted. All right, last up, this is a much longer article. Actually, they have a whole website for this thing now for this report uh, called americandragnet.org. Uh, I'm just going to read you the, the summary here. And if you want to read the full article, there's a link in the show notes. When you think about government surveillance in the United States, you likely think of the National Security Agency or the FBI. You might even think of a powerful police agency, such as the New York Police Department. But unless you or someone you love has been targeted for deportation, you probably don't immediately think of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. This report argues that you should. Our two-year investigation, including hundreds of Freedom of Information Act requests and a comprehensive review of ICE's contracting and procurement records, reveal that ICE now operates as a domestic surveillance agency. Since its founding in 2003, ICE has not only been building its own capacity to use surveillance to carry out deportations, but has also played a key role in the federal government's larger push to amass as much information as possible about all of our lives. By researching into the digital records of state and local governments and buying databases with billions of data points from private companies, ICE has created a surveillance infrastructure that enables it to pull detailed dossiers on nearly anyone, seemingly at any time. In its efforts to arrest and deport, ICE has, without any judicial, legislative, or public oversight, 
reached into data sets containing personal information about the vast majority of people living in the U.S. whose records can end up in the hands of immigration enforcement simply because they apply for driver's licenses, drive on the roads, or sign up with their local utilities to get access to heat, water, and electricity. ICE has built up its dragnet surveillance system by crossing legal and ethical lines, leveraging the trust that people place in state agencies and essential service providers, and exploiting the vulnerability of people who volunteer their information to reunite with their families. Despite the incredible scope and evident civil rights implication of ICE's surveillance practices, the agency has managed to shroud those practices in near-total secrecy, evading the enforcement of even the handful of laws and policies that could be invoked to impose limitations. Federal and state lawmakers, for the most part, have yet to confront this reality. This report synthesizes what is already known about ICE surveillance with new information from thousands of previously unseen and unanalyzed records, illustrating the on-the-ground impact of ICE surveillance through three case studies. ICE access to driver data, utility customer data, and data collected about the families of unaccompanied children. So that is the executive summary. And then it goes on with a bunch of key points. And I, I honestly could try to list them, but it, it's really, it's really long. It's honestly quite scary. And it's really damning this report. I, I'll be very interested to see how much attention this gets in like mainstream media. Uh, I will keep an eye on it. Again, um, you can read the full report if you go to the show notes. Uh, I'm going to see if I can find somebody at Georgetown Privacy to talk to me about this. I've been trying to find somebody at Georgetown Privacy for a long time. Actually, it turns out, <laughs> turns out one of my uh, specialist doctors has a brother who works there, and he said, oh, I should hook you up. I'm like, yeah, you should. Uh, and for, what, <laughs> for whatever reason, for years now, that has not materialized. Uh, so anyway, I'm working on it. We'll see what we can find out. All right, so now it's time for your tip of the week. And normally I would try to, you know, find some tip of the week, you know, directly related to some, one of the news stories. Uh, but I also feel like because I do that, sometimes I overlook some really common stuff that we should be talking about more often. And so I want to highlight some other great practices and tools in some of our tips of the week going forward that don't necessarily directly tie to one of the news stories. Today, we're going to talk about a tool that I've talked about before, but I think you really all should give a, a serious look at using it. It's, it's really cool, especially if you use a service like Dropbox or iCloud or Google Drive or Microsoft's OneDrive, and you put any kind of information in those cloud folders, those cloud syncing folders that you might not want the service provider to be able to look at. And this tool is called Cryptomator. And Cryptomator is free and open source. It's a really great tool. It's been around a long time. I've used it for quite a while. And basically what it does is it creates a vault, uh, a locked folder, an encrypted folder within your regular cloud service provider folder. So if you have a Dropbox folder somewhere on your, on your computer, whatever you put in that Dropbox folder is magically synchronized through the cloud to any other devices you have uh, so that those files exist everywhere that you have a device. And so you could put a recipe on your computer and then you can get uh, to your Dropbox folder on your phone and look up that recipe and it's right there. But, you know, maybe you've got other data that's very convenient, right? Maybe you've got other data that you synchronize between your computers that you would not necessarily want, you know, Dropbox to be able to look at. And make no mistake, these companies do encrypt your data, both in transit and at rest on their servers. But they have the keys. So if they wanted to, or if some rogue employee wanted to, or if they were served with the right legal documents, they could and would provide that data. So maybe you've got some stuff that you would like to have the convenience for cloud syncing, but not, but know that the service provider providing that syncing service cannot access them. Enter Cryptomator. So Cryptomator is a very simple application. 
You just go to cryptomator.org. That's C-R-Y-P-T-O-M-A-T-O-R.org. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. If you go to cryptomator.org, you can find out all about the tool. There's some really nice graphics there that kind of show you all the key features are and why you might want to use one and how it works. And they've got great documentation for how to install it. Uh, But basically, you just download it, uh, install Cryptomator on your machine. And then when you open it up for the first time, uh, it will ask you if you want to either create a new vault and you can create as many as you want, uh, or you can open an, exist, an existing vault. For example, you might want to share something with somebody else this way. Maybe you've got a family Dropbox account or some other shared cloud service where you've got some data, but you want to share some private data. So you might want to create a vault in a shared cloud sync folder. And so someone may have already done this and then say, hey, you know, you just got to install Cryptomator and I'll give you the password and now you can access that too. So you may have an existing vault. Someone else may be sharing one with you. So uh, create a new vault. And all the vault is, it's just a special folder. So you'll give it a name. And because it's a folder name, you want to give it a valid folder name, like, you know, don't use special characters or anything that might, you know, cause some operating system to choke. Even if it doesn't cause your operating system to choke, you know, maybe Mac OS can handle, you know, an underscore in the fu- in a folder name, but maybe Windows can't, I, I'm pretty sure it can, but you know what I'm saying. So pick a simple f- folder name, a vault name that can work as a folder name without problem. And then you create this vault. You give, so you give it a name, you tell it where to put it. And if it detects that you already have, I mean, it can look and see if you've got the Dropbox app or if you've got a Dropbox folder. So it'll do a little scanning to see what you have so that it can say, Hey, do you want to put this in your Dropbox folder? Or do you want to put this in your Google drive folder? If it detects that you have those, it should offer those as places where you could put this, but you could also give it a custom location. You don't have to put it in the folder at all. You can actually just have a encrypted folder on your drive somewhere. So you could pick where you want this folder to go. And then you give it a password. So you give it a password, you enter it twice to make sure you got it right. And obviously you want this to be a good password and it has a little password strength indicator and you want to not lose this password. So you might want to put this password in, you know, like LastPass or Bitwarden or 1Password if you might want to save it as a secret there. Or you might want to make it a passphrase, a series of words, and you could use my site, d20key.com, for example, to generate a passphrase. Just make sure that whatever you come up with, password or passphrase, that you put it somewhere safe, and including writing on a piece of paper if you really need to. But save that because if you lose it, this data is lost. They do have an option for creating a recovery key, which, you know, if it's something that's really important that you don't want to lose, this is another great option. It's kind of a second password that will get you in there. And you could print that off and put it in your safety deposit box or something like that. But treat it like the password. It works the same way. And that's it. You're done. So now anything you put in this special folder and you can open the folder from within Cryptomator, you basically say, show me my vault. And it just opens up the folder, like a list of files like you would in Finder or Windows Explorer. Uh, And you deal with the files there. And then when you're done, you close the vault. And now all the stuff in there is just unreadable. If you even went to it yourself and tried to open that folder, it would just look like gobbledygook. You couldn't see what that stuff was. And crucially, Neither can Dropbox or iCloud or OneDrive or any of those guys either. All they see ever is the junk. When you have it unlocked, they still can't see it. So anyway, it's, it's, it's very simple. It's really cool. Try it out. I think you'll like it. Go to cryptomator.org and you can find out more. I will also be writing a blog article about this. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already gotten it. Uh, otherwise, you can go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And at this point, it should be the top article. So there you have it. There is your news and your tip of the week. All right, everybody, that will wrap it up for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. Uh, Again, if you haven't already, subscribe. That way you don't miss any of this goodness uh, every week. Uh, If you want more, go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons or look in the show notes or look on my website. There's lots of ways to get there. And if you become a patron, then you get access to even more bonus content. 
And as I mentioned before, if you don't want to, you know, sign up for a monthly subscription kind of a thing and be a patron, you know, on an ongoing basis, you could also just kind of throw some money in the tip jar. And I've got one of those now on my website in the form of a Monero, which is a type of cryptocurrency, a Monero wallet. And unlike Bitcoin, it actually is privacy preserving. It is a private way to send and receive money. And so if this might be something you you want to look into for your own good. So this might be an excuse for you to set that up. Uh, and the easiest way to do that is just to install a little app like Cake Wallet on your phone and set yourself up a, a Monero wallet. And the tricky part is getting the Monero in the first place. So that is where you've got to beware of you know online exchanges and things. And we talked about this, by the way, with Seth for privacy uh, not that long ago. So you might want to go back and re-listen to that episode where we talk about this a lot. Uh, and he he gives you some tips there about how to how to get Monero privately, but there actually you can go to certain ATMs. Certain ATMs will will give out cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and Monero. Of course, now if you're trying to be super uber private with this, some of those ATMs might have built-in cameras, so you know maybe that's going to be an issue for you. But there are other ways to do it too, and we covered this with Seth for privacy. And there's some links uh, on my website that, that that can also tell you how to how else you might go about obtaining some Monero in the first place, converting whatever your local currency is into Monero. And then after that, it's a piece of cake. It, then it works like Zelle or Venmo or any of these other apps where it's really easy to uh, send money to somebody else. So if you were at all curious about Monero and, and, and getting into that space uh, and would like to maybe do a one-time donation, you can now do that. All right, really quick, I got a great five-star review on the podcast. I just want to read that quickly. Uh, it says, my new go-to privacy and security spot. Stumbled on FDSG, which I, I assume is firewalls don't stop dragons. The G is not wrong. But anyway, uh, from the Lock and Code podcast, which, by the way, that was the podcast from Malwarebytes. Uh, I was on his podcast not that long ago. So helpful to listen to well-researched info while doing house chores. Join me in donating as this podcast is produced at cost. At highest risk are seniors. Learn more at AARP, uh, which is, if you're not familiar with that in the U.S., that's the American Association, uh, the American Association of Retired Persons, I think is what that is. And anybody over 50 in the U.S. can apply. You know what? I I wonder if it's international. I don't even know. But anyway, that's beyond the point. I know too many completely unaware or admittedly lazy or both about protecting themselves. I know a senior who handed all her passwords over to a scammer. I warned her before she went ahead, but she would not believe me. Still does not with scammers laughing all the way to the bank. So that's a sad tale built into a very nice review. But thank you so much for posting that review. Those things really do make a difference. Uh, Thank you for doing so. All right, next week, we have an interview with Philippe Umo, CEO of CrowdSec. We're going to talk a lot about firewalls and what those do for you in protection and how their CrowdSec product is a really interesting way. It's an open source firewall that crowdsources intelligence information. So very interesting interview. That'll be next week. And I've got other interviews, of course, coming down the pike. So subscribe if you haven't. Hope to see you every week. Take care, everybody. Until next week, as always, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.